Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We interrupt this broadcast for a special presentation. This is a speech from the Presidential Palace, written by President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. After a week of reprehensible violence and bloodshed, President Marshal Foch is pleased to note that order has returned to the French capital, and he wishes to take this opportunity today on the 5th of April, 1919, to address the nation and the world. Much controversy has followed the forcible seizure of the office of the President by President Marshal Foch, as has a great deal of misinformation. With these unfortunate byproducts of this tumultuous time in mind, President Marshal Foch wishes to clear the air and reassert a sense of calm by outlining what he has deemed the 16 points for peace. These 16 points are as follows. First, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, 
after having had his new regime approved by a considerable majority in the French Chamber of Deputies, is now the legal and official president of this great French Republic. His rule is legitimate and will accept no contenders, especially during such a time as this, when France is beset by danger on all sides. Second, once the final peace with Germany has been made to the satisfaction of all French citizens, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch declares it is his intention to abdicate the presidency and return the office to a civilian. Third, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch wishes to reassure the world that France remains a stable, liberal democracy with a free press and complete freedom of expression, and the president hopes that his amnesty of the political prisoners Albert Clavel and René Massigli from La Santé Prison will serve as a testament to this fact. President Poincaré, once he swears not to establish a rival political grouping in the country, will be freed from prison also. Fourth, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch and the Office of the French President generally wish to assure the Allies and the world that France remains beholden to virtually all treaties which have been previously signed. With very few exceptions detailed below, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch wishes matters to continue as normal and for previously agreed treaties to be respected and upheld. Fifth, the one treaty which will require significant reappraisal is the Treaty of Western Peace, specifically on the issues of territory and reparations. In a revised treaty, Prussia will consent to release Bavaria as an independent nation, the terms of such independence to be determined by its citizens and to guarantee as well the independence of Austria. The Union of Germany will not be dissolved, but German democratic regimes must be verified for their quality by independent observers to determine that this union remains the overriding wish of the majority of its citizens. Due to Bavaria and Austria's current efforts at establishing independent entities, it is imperative that the Allied powers recognise these efforts and legitimise them before it is too late. In return for these concessions towards peace, France consents to reduce the final sum for reparations from 220 billion gold marks, as set down in the original Western Front Peace Treaty, to just 85 billion gold marks, with the final decision on apportioning these funds to be determined by a committee consisting of the concerned Allied powers. Sixth, a council with plenipotentiary powers will be established in league with the Supreme Council and Supreme Economic Council, with an exclusive remit for determining Allied policy on Russia. This Council for Russian Freedoms will be staffed with one Allied representative from each concerned nation, and should help all concerned parties arrive at a solution for Russia at long last. Seventh, in line with its efforts to facilitate a compromise between France, Italy and the rest of the Allied powers, France commits to contribute 100,000 volunteers for the fight for Russian freedom, and Italy has consented to provide 50,000. If agreed to by the Allies, General David Whiteside McKay of Australia has been nominated as the commander of this force, and several Dominion powers of the British Empire have already expressed their desire to contribute forces of their own. Through this action, France intends to shoulder a great deal of the burden of the fight for Russian freedom, and President Marshal Ferdinand Foch hopes that France will be treated with the relative respect such a responsibility incurs. Eighth, the first three months of the conference have borne witness to many disappointments and a great deal of wasted time. The most egregious such misfortune has been the virtual divorce of the two allied parties, specifically the Party of the West and the party known as IFTA, the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement. In recent days it was announced amidst great uproar 
that President Marshal Ferdinand Foch has consented to attach France to this latter institution. While this is true, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch did not take this decision to drive a further wedge between East and West. The President's office continues to negotiate with the Italian and Polish parties, the two most prolific actors in IFTA, in a bid to reach some negotiated solution. It is the sincere wish of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch that East and West, IFTA and Allied powers alike, will reach an amicable settlement in the coming days and put aside their petty differences for the good of the Greater Peace Treaty. It was with this noble goal in mind that President Marshal Ferdinand Foch determined to unilaterally attach French interests to those of IFTA. It is while their interests are aligned to IFTA that the greatest opportunities for compromise can be therefore reached. Ninth, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, acting under the authority vested in him by the French democratic apparatus which governs the French Republic, wishes to convey notice of an official amnesty for all prisoners arrested in the last week of regrettable violence. This includes, as has been mentioned, the public servants Albert Clavel and René Massigli, but the President's office must express regret that former President Raymond Poincaré still demonstrates a determined desire for establishing a rival power bloc in France once he is set free. The last thing France can afford right now is civil war, and it must therefore be said that Raymond Poincaré will remain under house arrest until such a date as it can be safely ascertained that the former president harbours no such ambitions. Tenth, the Parisian police continue to comb the streets of Paris for Bolsheviks and have uncovered some frightening details of conspiracy in the course of their investigations. Pavel Lebova, the former delegate for Poland, has been implicated as an assassin responsible for the deaths of Alexander Kerensky and Kaim Weizmann. He has also confessed to paying an assassin to finish off George Clemenceau. Upon further torture, I mean persuasion, Monsieur Lebova revealed that he bribed a French journalist to create rumours about the German retention of Alsace-Lorraine in a bid to fan the flames of revolution on the streets of Paris and upend the entire peace conference. Monsieur Lebova has since confessed his crimes as an anarchist with revolutionary Bolshevik inclinations and it is a good thing for the peace of the world that he has been stopped and is currently arrested. 11th. It is earnestly hoped that the current peace conference will continue but it is also accepted that Paris is no longer safe as a home base for the conference. Instead, it is believed by the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch that the conference will continue in the Anna Bay Hotel on the outskirts of London. The structure of said conference recommends the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch should be rebuilt. German delegates, who are in no way fit to serve on an Allied Council, will have their accreditation removed. With the return to Germany by delegate Horten von Hotzendorf, only Paul von Leto Vorbeck remains, and it is the hope of the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch that to facilitate a meaningful peace treaty, von Leto Vorbeck will remain on side as an advisor for his country, but that he will be stripped of his powers to effect the final peace treaty. The office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch must emphasise in the strongest terms that the presence of an enemy delegation on the proactive Allied Councils undermines the very concept of a preliminary peace conference. This conclusion has been reached by President Marshal Ferdinand Foch and by an overwhelming majority of the French Chamber of Deputies. Germany can expect fair treatment, but must not be allowed to dictate the peace terms of the war it has recently caused and lost. Twelfth, the newly refreshed conference will resume its full duties from next week, 
the 12th of April 1919, once the recently released prisoners, Albert Clavel and René Massigli, have arrived in London. Upon their arrival, the office of the President Marshal Ferdinand Foch wishes to suggest a revision of the old style of inter-allied negotiation. There should be a Council of Eight, which will consist of the Premier and Foreign Minister from the great states of Britain, America, Japan and France. There should then be a minor council, consisting of the premiers of the other concerned Allied powers, and equipped to receive representations from the Council of Eight. This arrangement will serve as a kind of bicameral system, and will ensure that all decisions reached by the Allies will be verified, with the Council of Eight having the final say. Currently, the office of the President Marshal Ferdinand Foch believes there are no grounds for Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, Hungary or Turkey to sit on the minor council, but it is possible that, in return for concessions previously laid down, each of the defeated enemy nations will be permitted to have an observer sit in the deliberations of the minor council only. 13th. Regarding the current situation in Italy, it has come to the attention of the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch that Italian forces had landed along the Illyrian coastline and moved rapidly thereafter towards the major cities and towns of the Kingdom of the South Slavs. On the 2nd of April, with considerable aid from Slovenian and Croatian auxiliaries, both Slovenia and Croatia have been declared liberated by Italian troops. Evidence has since been uncovered of a Serbian conspiracy to forcibly entrap all Balkan nations together in an unwilling nation. It is therefore fortunate that the Italians acted when they did, and in return for the promise of peace, the office of Premier Vittorio Orlando had welcomed mediation. On the 4th of April, yesterday, with the help of Swiss mediation, it is the understanding of the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch that Belgrade has reached an agreement for peace with Italy. There remains much to be done to heal the fractured Balkan region, but it is now fortunate that this region flies the white flag of peace after so many agonising years. In return for settling so many of the woes of this region, it is only fair to apportion Italy some reward. With great modesty, the office of Vittorio Orlando had requested only Fiume, which the Serbian government recently conceded. Thus, while this peace treaty has in theory violated the previous stance of the Allied powers, including the Treaty of London, its blessing by all relevant parties involved suggests that the Allied powers in London would do wise to ratify it as well. Vittorio Orlando's government has indicated that they would welcome, with further Swiss mediation, an international commission to investigate the different claims of the former South Slav client states, in particular Montenegro, Albania and Macedonia, who wish to reassert the sovereignty of their own nations as well. 14th. The office of the President Marshal Ferdinand Foch wishes to express its heartfelt and sincere regret for the loss of life and conspiracy to commit murder which has recently been suffered by those delegates present in Paris. While much of the demonstrations over the previous weekend of the 30th of March were peaceful, there were regrettably some extremist elements also taking part who engaged in far too bloody a campaign of violence. The newly legitimised regime of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch has surely demonstrated by now that it has no intention of unduly punishing those that were on different political sides to its supporters. However, there remains emergency legislation in place to detain all individuals suspected of engaging in Bolshevik practices or sponsoring a Bolshevik party. Recent events and the association of Bolsheviks with so many terrible deeds, let alone what continues to transpire in Russia, moves the regime of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch to declare a policy of zero tolerance 
for all such individuals on the extreme left of the political spectrum, especially those that seek to use violence to achieve their ends. Fifteenth, the campaign to restore the dignity of the French Republic has been a success, and the President Marshal, Ferdinand Foch, wishes to establish that the campaign was launched with the country's security and future prosperity in mind. Under the previous regime, following numerous crises and with the passage of several treaties, it became evident that the French interests were being overwhelmed by those of Germany. To oppose this creeping takeover of the conference by German and central power interests, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch has established his presidency. That has been its primary aim, but the President Marshal remains determined to have a final say on the final terms of peace. Thus, any treaty which is agreed to at the Anna Bay Hotel Resort must then be ratified by the French Chamber of Deputies and the office of the President Marshal Ferdinand Foch before it is actually to be ratified as international law. Due to the central interest and stake of France in this final treaty, and due to the scarring effect which the German rivalry has had on France, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch believes this request to be fair and forthright. Sixteenth, and finally, the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch declares that it is truly sorry for those lives that were lost during the course of this campaign for securing French integrity. The President has personally met with the relatives of all victims who lost their lives in the course of the violence, and generous pensions have been promised to each of those in need. The office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch has recorded a final death toll of 1,459, including 779 French citizens, 233 Americans and 145 Russians, the latter of whom seem to have been implicated in the worst outbreaks of violence. It is evident from this information and from the crimes of Pavel Lobova that much of the violence of recent days was the work of Bolshevik malcontents. Thus, it is the earnest hope of the office of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch that the Allies will accept the olive branch which France now extends, and that all Allied parties will commit next week to the proper commencement of meaningful, productive peacemaking, such that the world deserves. Signed, President of the Republic, Marshal Ferdinand Foch, 5th of April 1919, 1.37pm. Well, hello there, and welcome, delegates all, to episode 10 of the Delegation Game. Our 10th episode is a special one, because it is here that several important story threads congeal and culminate, with the end result being, hopefully, a renewed impetus behind peacemaking efforts, and fewer opportunities for squabbles which had so badly delayed the creation of a final piece. What we've got in store for you today is something a bit different. As you noticed from the announcement which opened our episode today, Marshal Ferdinand Foch, or that is, of course, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, has established his regime in France, and he wants to return to the business of peacemaking. His 16 points, his demands therein, while steep in some respects, also contain their fair share of compromise and opportunity for others to benefit. If you want a recap of what those demands are, you can get a hard copy of these 16 points 
and the Patreon episode page, but I'll also upload the document to the Facebook group. Remember as well that we update the details on who's playing who each week, and I upload that Excel spreadsheet to the Patreon episode too, so do check that out if you are a curious delegate. Anyway, back to the task at hand, and Ferdinand Foch evidently wishes to guard France against the twin evils of German revenge and Bolshevik revolution, and he believes that his 16 points will guarantee this. In the vote which we will send out this week, you'll have the option to approve of, to abstain, or to disprove of these 16 points. One thing is certain, if you do approve, then the French government will be empowered, confident and willing to compromise. If, however, the delegates do not vote in favour of these 16 points for peace, then it is hard to imagine how, bar some extensive negotiations, France will take part in the final peace treaty, which will in itself be disastrous for the peace of the world. It should go without saying that none of the aforementioned 16 points are negotiable. However, some are less rigidly set in stone than others. For example, final figures for reparations and the final form of government which an independent Bavaria will adopt. These remain pertinent questions open to final negotiation. Hopefully this has soothed some of the fears which those of you had following last week's episode. It was unfortunate that many of you were upset by what took place, but perhaps now you'll see where we were going with it. While France had, in our timeline, achieved some concessions of worth, these were not nearly sufficient to appease the more hardline figures like Foch, who had, in historical terms, always demanded the highest price from Germany, in the Rhine particularly. With Clemenceau's moderating influence gone, and Germany taking their seats as accredited delegates, it was perhaps inevitable that veterans like Foch should take it so personally, and take it upon himself to lead the French people to reassert their national dignity in the face of so many affronts. Pavel Lebova, for Foch, was also a supremely important boon to his regime's legitimacy, as that Polish delegate had been caught red-handed by an undercover French policeman who recognised Lebova after the latter attempted to purchase bomb-making materials from him. Lebova's precise loyalties or aims were difficult to grasp, and the Pole remains in La Sante prison in no fit state to have visitors, if you know what I mean. Meanwhile, everyone has made their way to London in light of the collapse of French order over the previous few days. A few individuals, such as Pavel Lebova, the two French delegates and some others, were left behind, but by and large a new phase of the negotiations, based at the luxurious but alcohol-short Annabay Hotel, overlooking the mouth of the Thames, has begun. After having followed these punchy policy decisions by the hopeful new French president over the first few days of April, we turn our attention to the 7th of April, where the terms of Foch's 16 points were being digested in a large gathering of several Allied powers in the lobby of the Annabay Hotel. Without any further ado then, I will now take you there. There was an atmosphere of unmistakable tension in the room. France, any representation of France, was conspicuous by its absence, and in his hands, the American president held the latest communique from the new president of that country. It presented several opportunities, but also several problems. It saved the Allies a great deal of effort, and promised to cut through a whole load of red tape, but President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, or whatever he insisted on calling himself, had also executed a sequence of fait accomplis, which the Allies would be effectively powerless to overturn. The war in the Balkans had somehow been wrapped up within a week, and London now had Foch, 
in addition to some Swiss intermediaries, to thank for the resolution of that mess. Thankfully, the Allies had held back on recognising the Kingdom of the South Slavs for some time. Another figure who was conspicuous in his absence was Karhu Rosnak. As the new premier of an independent Slovenia, welcomed by a rapturous population, and in a defensive alliance now with Croatia, Italy and France, it was impossible to approach the subject of overturning that result. And what would be the point anyway? To forcibly bind several Balkan states together again, under what had been exposed since as an unlawful Serbian domination? No, that wouldn't do. Wilson had to admit that the current arrangement was keeping more in line with the principles of self-determination, which they had all committed to uphold, even if the journey to arrive at that destination had been far from ideal. As several delegates were coming to appreciate, though, the world was a messy place in 1919. Maybe the conference needed this kick which the marshal had given it. While they could never be seen to publicly approve his naked power grab, reports on the ground had it that the French Chamber of Deputies voted unanimously for Foch's presidential run to begin. The French public servants granted Foch their blessing, and they did so reportedly with tears of joy in their eyes, that their marshal saved them in the peace just as he had saved them in the war. While he had certainly ruffled some feathers, he nonetheless boasted a regime now which was almost wholly supported by the people of France and certainly of Paris. Bolsheviks had been systematically hunted down, and in a stunning reveal, Pavel Lobova had been outed as the Bolsheviks' man on the inside, so to speak, who had worked with other disruptive elements to make Paris terminally unsafe for all that had operated there. Reportedly, Kaim Weizmann's body had been found in Lebova's wardrobe in the Hotel Zachary, a further strike against him. Lebova had sheepishly explained that the Zionist delegate had made a habit of trying to hide from him, but French authorities were evidently unconvinced. Would Lebova swing? It was unclear, but what was clear was that France had been invigorated, even though it took the deaths of 1,500 people to achieve that. For all those transgressions, including the deaths of more than 200 Americans, Foch had profusely apologised and insisted that compensation would be immediately given. His 16 points, Wilson had to admit, contained a central paradox. On the one hand, it was an affront to the sensibilities of the democratic West, but on the other, it had established a popularly supported regime which earnestly wished to make amends and aid the Allies in their quest to fix the post-war world. Fixing the post-war world would be totally impossible without French membership in the League of Nations, and Wilson was comforted that at least the 16 points had not even alluded to that new institution. If Foch's references to other treaties being upheld was true, then that meant France would be a League member as before, but nothing would have changed. Although, of course, a great deal had changed. Foch had seized power, whether approved of or not after the event, and that was not an act which could be consented to. But, Wilson had to ask himself, was it worth asserting principles in this case, where meeting Foch where he stood would guarantee peace? Furthermore, those crimes Foch had committed, he atoned for, and he committed to give up the presidency once the peace treaty was acquired. He'd even released Albert Clavel and René Sigli, who were en route to take back their seats on board the Council of Twelve, or should that be the Council of Eight? Wilson admitted it had a good ring to it, and it would be the equivalent of a dream to not have to defend his policy from the Germans at every turn. It was hard enough defending this policy from Theodore Roosevelt. 
Wilson was still unsure as to how he would vote when it came time to voice an opinion on those 16 points, but it was clear by now that this was no ordinary coup. He had heard it called a benign coup by some French citizens who had fled from Paris with them, but Wilson thought that was a bit much. The extreme elements of those demonstrations the previous week, which had apparently swept Foch to power, did not represent the mostly peaceful inclinations of the majority, and that was important. France was now stable, eager to help, and potentially very useful indeed if Foch fulfilled his promise to intervene in Russia with 100,000 volunteers. Fanned by the flames of anger towards the assassination of Clemenceau, these volunteers had not been hard to find. By their actions, everything had been made much simpler, and the path finally seemed open for a compromise with those insufferable IFTA folks as well. Wilson looked across the room at Paul von Leto Vorbeck. The normally unshakable general was sweating profusely. He did not look himself. General, Wilson called out, and 13 people immediately turned to face him. Wilson scoffed. I meant you, General von Leto Vorbeck. Come over here and talk to me. Paul von Leto Vorbeck got out of his chair and walked about 10 feet over to the other side of the large oval table, where all the important delegates were seated. Present around the table was a veritable who's who of the peace conference, now transplanted to this, the admittedly luxurious hotel resort on the outskirts of London, the Anna Bay. They currently suffered from shortages in spirits, so it was said, but von Leto Vorbeck had not let this stop him. He had already paid top dollar for their most expensive scotch, and he could have spent all day with such a glass of heaven. How he longed now for the open African bush, where it was only him, his troops and his wits. Here in these rooms there was even more danger and fewer protections to confront. Von Leto Vorbeck arrived beside the president and sat on the vacant chair beside him. They had been talking all morning as a large group of delegates and many had left for lunch. The topic of conversation that morning had been Foch's 16 points, a weighted document indeed. General, I just wanted to inquire as to the state of your health. Are you quite well? Von Leto Vorbeck dabbed his forehead with a handkerchief and realised that again he had been sweating profusely for much of the morning. He was overcome with anxiety. Yes, Mr. President, von Leto Vorbeck began. I am quite well in health, but I am laid low with worry. I must draw your attention to Foch's 11th point, wherein he notes the departure of Horton von Hotzendorf to Berlin. I must now draw your attention to the regrettable fact that no one in Germany knew of the extent of the concessions we had been forced to make under the Western Front Peace Treaty. Thus, when Foch released his 16 points to the world and attached as an appendix the contents of that treaty, they were perused by the average German citizen for the first time. I regret that Horten von Hotzendorf may be punished gravely for its contents, though agreeing to its passage was not a fault of his or of myself. Wilson squinted at von Leto Vorbeck. The normally immaculate military man was feeling the strain. His clothes were dirty and his collar wasn't starched. This could have been the result of a general clothes shortage, which many in London were suffering from, as so many delegates rushed to leave France, thereby abandoning their diplomatic dress in Paris as they did so. But this was more than a simple case of forgetting his luggage. Von Leto Vorbeck seemed shaken by the situation to a degree he had never been shaken before, even when on campaign, when his life was in immediate danger. Was his life in danger now? General, if you worry for your colleague's safety, why did you not accompany him? 
Von Leto Vorbeck made a face as though he had been asked the question several times. Indeed, Wilson had only asked him this exact question three days before. By asking it again, Wilson wanted to see if Von Leto Vorbeck would give him a different answer. Maybe the situation had changed? Not so. Von Leto Vorbeck reverted to his previous response. Someone of rank had to stay to guard German interests, the general retorted. All he could think of were those horrific images of Horton von Hotzendorf being torn literally to pieces by the enraged German mob. No matter what way he spun it, that image terrified von Leto Vorbeck more than any image of any battlefield he had ever seen. Chancellor Karl Renner approached von Leto Vorbeck from his left side, and the general walked over to meet him. The two men began smoking and, from what Wilson could see, relished that moment to relax, insulated somewhat by their language barrier, though of course not from all delegates who were blessed with proficiency in multiple languages. What's this business about an independent Austria? And Bavaria? Could he be serious? What about German unity? Renner asked the general. I know, Your Excellency, I know. I do not believe Bavaria desires to be independent, however and I imagine that the proposal will not succeed. I am afraid I must respectfully disagree, General, Renner replied. I received word that a representative from Bavaria is on his way, Johann Hoffmann, the socialist minister-president. Von Leto Vorbeck was dumbstruck. It is all a scheme to undermine the authority of Prussia, he spat. I hope Fosch knows what he is doing. How will you fight him, General, when you are here on the generosity of the Allied powers? Renner asked. He didn't ask the question maliciously, but as a genuinely curious outsider looking in who feared for the future of his fatherland. I will fight France as I fought Britain, on the field if absolutely necessary, but I do believe that it will not come to that. The Allies know that Horton von Holzendorf and I represent the moderate face of the new German Republic. If they spurn us now, radicals, perhaps Bolsheviks, will take our place and they won't find much comfort with them. On the other side of the large, square-shaped room, in the corner next to the jug of water and porcelain mugs, stood a positively traumatised Ignacy Paderewski. The pianist, statesman and patriot was now the last pole standing, with the exception of Bogdan Kudzal, who had taken to his bed in a fit of grief upon learning of Lobova's situation. It was a fate worse than death, Kudzal said, and it inevitably undid all the good work that had been done since this terrible eruption in the Hotel Twomley earlier in the year. How had so many troubled Poles found their way onto this delegation? Paderewski felt as though he was being toyed with by some higher power. Upon learning of the news a few days ago, he took to the piano, and he played then such a bitter, angry but also tragically mournful piece that people begged him, with tears in their eyes, to stop and to play something more uplifting. He had received a personal letter from the President Marshall, who informed him that he believed Poland was worth saving and that its misfortune with public servants did not change this fact. Poland, Foch said, had a friend in him and a friend in France. Paderewski wished to believe him, but he didn't know if he could believe in anything anymore. Perhaps he would take to his bed too. He walked slowly out of the room, past the two Belgians standing smoking by the door. Mercifully, generous Dinglebrush did not see him.
I would not recommend it, Your Excellency, Paul Demons said for the third time that day, when Dinglebush asked him once more whether he thought he should accept the offer from Foch to command Allied forces into Russia. It would be a seriously dangerous mission, and we are not quite certain yet whether the expedition would even go ahead. You are quite right, Monsieur Imons, Dinglebush replied, resting his hands as he said so on his large protruding belly. It was an orange waistcoat on the menu today, but it did him no more favours than the yellow variety. Every time he took a drag of his cigarette, Dinglebush stared at it intently as though it had cured him of some ailment. Imons knew he was only doing this to appear sophisticated, but at least he was smoking properly. Imons had never quite managed the rhythm of inhaling and exhaling the smoke without feeling like he'd cough up a lung. Supposedly, smoking was supposed to make one relax, but Polymons felt he would need more than cigarettes to reach any state of relaxation. A few feet from Polymons stood a new face, the unfortunate Italian representative who had yet to be officially welcomed by those present. He had been given a few curious looks throughout the morning, having arrived to present his credentials at 9am as scheduled, but then the full text of Foch's 16 points had arrived, so he had been forced to stand around awkwardly in the hope that matters would proceed to the next item on the agenda, him. He wasn't looking forward even then to this prospect, largely because it would require reading out another memo straight from the presses of Vittorio Orlando's government. Peace had been established in the Balkans after only a few days of fighting, but the Italian ministers had pleaded for a hasty settlement in case the country was gripped by a military-style coup of its own. Extremist right-wing sentiments and movements seemed to stalk Vittorio Orlando's premiership, but one could not deny that Vittorio Orlando had never been so popular. In the present moment, his victorious adventure into Dalmatia, his sponsoring of explosive revolts in Zagreb and Ljubljana, effectively torpedoed Serbian resistance before it truly had a chance to materialise. It was the element of surprise, the new Slovenian premier, Karhu Rosnak had claimed, not to mention the rapturous enthusiasm in those oppressed Balkan states who worked desperately to throw off the Serbian yoke. In his hand, the now sweaty piece of paper rested. Lorenzo Martili had read the statement over and over again, but he still did not like it. Would those present be convinced of its authenticity or worth? Vittorio Orlando was effectively passing the book onto him so that he could rule from Rome more effectively. Considering the circumstances, Martili confessed that he could not blame the Premier for staying home, especially as so much disruption threatened to derail the entire conference. Martili checked his watch again. It was nearly 2pm. He sighed loudly and sat down on a chair, reading once more the statement in his hot, stodgy hands. It read, Today, Italy sets out to fulfil a new mission and to correct a failing of the post-armistice talks in Paris. Italy is taking military action as a final resort, following the extreme provocation from Serbia and its agents. Serbia's actions directly provoked Austria to start the war. It has not learned its lesson. It has acted to defy the 14 points and to deliberately stir up anti-Western, particularly anti-Italian sentiment. We will not allow this. Italy wishes to uphold and enshrine the noble purpose of the 14 principles across the world, and in particular in the Balkans. It is the only roadmap to stability and peace we have. Italy seeks to free those peoples of Slovene, Croat, Bosnian, Kosovar, Herzegovinian, Macedonian, Montenegrin and Albanian origin 
who have come under the yoke of the Serb, we believe Mr. Wilson is right to call for their freedom. These nations have too long suffered under the boot of the Habsburgs for Italy to stand by and watch them fall under the heel of the Karadjordjevic dynasty. Be under no illusion, we are acting with force, justified force. That we do it alone shows just how much the bourgeois diplomatic classes of the Paris Conference have failed in four long months. Prime Minister Orlando refuses to attend further conferences in Paris or in London. He welcomes any delegations to Rome to discuss the matter further. As a token of his respect to the misfiring process, he presents Italy's streamlined delegation, embodied in the sole person of Signor Lorenzo Martelli. God save the king. The real question, at least in Lorenzo Martelli's mind, was that which asked whether the British and Americans would accept this fait accompli, thereby granting France and Italy what they wanted and guaranteeing the continuation of the conference. Or would they cease to recognise Foch's regime or Vittorio Orlando's successes in the process dooming the conference from continuing? It was a toss-up between what was practical and what was morally right. Or maybe, Martili thought, there were shades of grey. After all, would it not be immoral to fail to create some kind of peace treaty? So the Italians had beaten up some rule-breaking Serbs and Foch had not behaved according to the exact letter of the law when coming into the presidency. Were these facts now to doom the rest of the world to an eternity of conflict unending? Was it not worth it to compromise, to accept that bad had been done in the name of fixing the bad that was in the world? Lorenzo Martelli thought so, and he could only hope that the Allies would see things this way too. Four figures sat huddled at the table a few feet from where Wilson had been seated, a cloud of smoke above their heads. If the smoke could talk, it would say that the four figures below were entering something of a crisis mode. They knew that the reception had been suspicious towards Foch's 16 points, but also they knew that the last few hours had seen attitudes soften. However, this was far from how they felt. According to Baron Makino Nabuwaki, Lady Nora Chalk, Dmitry Robotnik and Charles Shear, these proposals suited them down to the ground. Nabuwaki, now of increased fame since his standoff in the Hotel Zachary, interpreted the 16 points as an ideal opportunity for Japan to bargain with France. In return for concessions in Asia, specifically in French Indochina, Nabuwaki planned to voice his approval of Foch's 16 points. These points concerned him far less than Robotnik, who was positively jumpy with excitement now that Foch had proclaimed his intentions to intervene with considerable force against the Bolsheviks. Lady Nora Chalk was more subdued, but still plainly loud in her feelings of joy. This represented a perfect opportunity to protect Hungary from the Bolsheviks, and hopefully return Budapest to the councils of the world. Chalk had been informed, though she had yet to tell the Allies, that Bela Kuhn, a Bolshevik revolutionary, had recently been arrested while attempting to stage a Bolshevik coup of his own, in a bid to take advantage of the disruption in Europe. Thankfully, the Allies had created, in the Budapest government, a stronger regime than Kuhn had expected. While being rounded up, Kuhn was shot in the back of the head by a right-wing sympathiser. Official Hungarian reports made a brief note of this incident, but Lady Chalk knew that there was more to the story. Hungary, in this act, had been saved from the country's most vocal proponent of Bolshevism, and it was therefore not in any real danger from that creed any longer. Lady Chalk determined to keep quiet on these facts, though. So long as the spectre of Bolshevism hung over the East, 
she would have more leverage. As he inhaled, Charles Shear felt his whole face throb. His nose hadn't just been broken, it had nearly been lanced clean off by a baseball bat no less. Evidently a French ruffian had stolen such a weapon from an unwitting American visitor. Shear's face represented a kaleidoscope of different colours, shades of blue, black and red, with a large brace bandage over the bridge of his nose. The physician said the swelling would go down within a few weeks. It was difficult to breathe with such a wound. Yet Scheer did have reason to be positive. These 16 points reduced the power of Germany and provided new opportunities for his beloved Alsace to make independent moves on the European stage. If the Western Front Treaty could be reopened by the new French president, then who else could open other treaties and question the settlement on Alsace-Lorraine? Could he do such a thing? Perhaps not, but by approving of formerly autonomous regions breaking away from the centre, Charles Scheer hoped that he would set a precedent for his own Alsace to do the same. Did that even make sense? Perhaps the blinding pain was messing with his mind. Charles knew that he needed to lie down. Why did those Americans always insist on holding up the meeting? Theodore Roosevelt strolled back into the room, his five followers trailing behind him. He walked straight over to Wilson. Have you had any more chances to think about these 16 points, Mr. President? Roosevelt asked. I fear I may have to sleep on it, Mr. President, Wilson replied. Roosevelt smiled a condescending smile. I see. I understand, Mr. President, but my delegation and I are mostly united in approving these 16 points, on the basis that France, in league with Italy, will hereby be encouraged to return to the conference, and both can be depended upon to act forcibly in Russia, where we have been carrying a great proportion of the burdens. This is true, Wilson replied. I only hope we do not stray too far by legitimizing such underhanded tactics. This is the world we live in, Mr. President, Roosevelt replied. We can either decry what Foch has done and ruin our chances to ever make peace, or we can swallow this crime as we have swallowed so many others when it has suited us and move our negotiations forward to a point of genuine progress and productivity. Imagine, Mr. President, if all of us were united behind a common cause, what good deeds we might accomplish in London. Wilson felt his face twitching. It seemed that only being in Roosevelt's presence was enough to vex him now. I will think it over, of course, Wilson confirmed. Thank you, Mr. President, and give my regards to Mr. House. Wilson nodded weakly. House was bedridden after a nasty car accident had resulted in a broken arm. That, combined with the stress of the last few months, had caused House to fall into what amounted to a deep sleep for several days. Wilson admitted he felt deeply jealous of his old friend, escaping so effortlessly into a land so far from this one. As Wilson watched him sleep, he noted that not the sun shining on his face, nor the occasional chirping of a bird song would wake House up. How Wilson longed to go somewhere where, equally, nothing would disturb his rest, but that was impossible now. He thought matters had been difficult before, but before him today seemed an impossible choice, and one which he never imagined he would have to make. Did the American president want to stick to his morals, or did he want to achieve peace? Where once he had felt so self-assured, now Wilson felt convinced that he could no longer achieve both. And that, history friends and delegates, is the end of the episode. Hopefully now, 
you'll see that it's not all doom and gloom. You'll also note that not everyone got a mention this week, and that's mostly because of Fosh's 16 points that I had to address. It would have taken too long to cover everyone, and I don't really want another hour-long episode of the delegation game. So, since the main event was Fosh's 16 points, hopefully you'll be able to wrap your heads around them and prepare for next week. As you can probably tell, next week is when the conference fully resumes, and when that happens, with perhaps the Council of Eight assembled, the proper business of this conference can resume too. And I say perhaps because this is where I put it over to you. I know Fosh has committed several crimes, but I want you, dear delegates, to imagine what choice the delegates of the world have other than to recognise him. With Pavel Lobova imprisoned for his role in fanning the flames of the crisis, and the Serbian government renouncing its control over the Balkans, it's hard to argue that no good came of his actions. Italy and France, both having sacrificed much, are now in a position to help the Allied peace effort with far more gusto and enthusiasm than ever before, thanks largely to the fact that they've gotten a lot of what they wanted. This may well appear unfair to you, but the reality is, this peace conference is going nowhere fast unless all delegates take a serious look in the mirror and ask themselves what is more important. For the sake of fairness, I will be putting Fosh's 16 points up to a vote, but for the sake of balance on our forward progression in this game, I hope all delegates will make the right choice. Whether it is realistic or not, I will leave you to judge. Who can say what the marginalised, resentful Marshal Fosh would have done had Clemenceau been assassinated and German delegates taken seats on the Council of Ten? What we have done here is spice things up to effectively bring forward the consequences of further voting decisions. And while that freaked everyone out last week, now we have hopefully reached a point where, you can see, the situation is a great deal more calm than you may have feared. Apologies for the somewhat backward structure of this episode, though. You'll note that some new delegates have wandered into our consciousness. In particular, I'd like to welcome Johann Hoffmann, the Bavarian Minister-President, who is a character I have assigned to the player James, as he is yet to take part. In addition, we have a new Swiss delegate, Felix Collender, who is making a name for himself in brokering an Italian peace in the Balkans, before returning his attention to France next week, when he will arrive for the conference. Speaking of Italians, Lorenzo Martelli has replaced Vittorio Orlando as the character being played by a Mr. Rob Finch. Thanks to Mr. Finch for letting me know about this change, and if anyone else would like to change their characters, the choice is only an email away. Lith Lilia has yet to get back to me, so Fosh remains their player character, but remember if you wish, as I said, it only takes a moment for me to switch up these characters. I also have to say I was offered an interesting proposition in the last few days, as some of you delegates offered to take the more vacant player characters off my hands until their actual players materialise, if indeed they do. I'm very happy to facilitate this, and in line with this idea, you should know that the following avatars are potentially up for grabs. Sean T. O'Kelly of Ireland, Nikola Pesic of Serbia, Ferdinand Fosch of France, Edward Benesch of the Czechoslovak state, and from next week, Johann Hoffmann of Bavaria. These five individuals could have a profound impact, and some already have, but I simply do not have enough time to give them the attention they deserve. Perhaps if we set up yet another chat group, sorry about that, we'll be able to organise apportioning responsibilities to other players. So in conclusion, you will be requested to vote on how you feel about Fosh's 16 points, 
And don't forget, if you needed a refresher, you can download the document which includes these 16 points in the episode on the Patreon page, where you can also sign up to play this game. If you're listening in right now and you haven't signed up to play already, and you want to know exactly how you can have a role in shaping this very crazy conference. Regarding the vote on these 16 points, you have the choice of approving the 16 points, condemning them, or abstaining. No permit history option is available this time round, as of course we can expect. All being well, Europe will be a little more stable when we resume our story next week. But until then, dear delegates, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 10 of the Delegation Game. Thanks for playing and for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.